Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first property casualty insurance podcast, bringing you perspective and insight on the top issues facing industry professionals. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering the NAIC Summer Meeting, how NAMIC is getting involved to help the NAIC establish a group capital calculation standard. Plus, the IBHS releases a wind damage investigation on Hurricane Harvey, the steps researchers recommend homeowners take as they rebuild, and emerging technologies, how NAMIC is helping regulators address safety issues when it comes to automated vehicles and drones. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners left its summer meeting in Boston facing a tight deadline. The International Association of Insurance Supervisors, as well as the signed covered agreement, give the NAIC until the end of this year to develop a group capital calculation standard to be used in the U.S. The NAIC working group plans to roll out field testing for volunteers and state regulators as they determine which entities should be included in the scope of application for the group capital calculation. NAMIC's financial regulation manager, John Rogers, was at the meeting and says field testing should start as soon as possible. The NAIC has said that they want to get it done by 2018, so year-end. Um, however, we have not seen any thing on paper. We, we've seen this you know, document that would provide guidance, and we would take the, the, the approach that you have everything you need right now. It's ready for field testing. Some of these unanswered questions that you, you know, need to, to, to complete you know, before you can actually have a final group capital calculation, those can be kind of determined throughout the field testing exercise. And so where we're at now with, um, you know, with, with Boston just completing a couple of weeks ago is they took the letter that the NAMIC and the trades submitted and they exposed that for comment for the general uh, industry to, you know, to weigh in on. And they had a series of questions you know, about one, how this, who should this be applied to? Should there be any, um, you know, exemptions provided? You know, we would say that, you know, if it, there should be some sort of threshold like, like an ORSA or like the model audit rule, you know, that kind of carves out the smaller companies. Um, and then the big one really is the, um, the fact that if, if an insurance company is at the top of the structure, they, in effect, in our position, already do a group capital calculation and so we would call that an an expedited approach not necessarily an exemption from the group capital but it's you know apples to apples type of thing and so um, there's questions that they have posed to the industry along those lines that uh, are out for comment and uh, we will participate in those and um, hopefully we can get this thing along so that by year end we actually have something that we can start testing. NAMIC is working with its members and other trade associations to respond to the NAIC's request for comment. Once field testing begins, NAMIC will ask its members to volunteer to help improve the calculation. For more updates on the summer meeting, check out the NAIC review on NAMIC.org. Hurricane Harvey will be remembered as a monumental flooding disaster that ravaged Texas in 2017. But the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety recently released its wind damage investigation, revealing there's more to the story. The IBHS report assessed property damage and provides quantitative data that researchers can use to improve building codes as storm victims rebuild. 
One example from the report found that 85% of the 213 homes studied suffered damage to asphalt shingles, the most popular form of roof cover. Texas does not have a statewide building code, but researchers recommend Texans choose to voluntarily build stronger homes. NEMIC has released results from its 2017 Governance Practices and Board Compensation Survey. This is the third year for the survey, which allows members to start identifying trends among board activities. NAMIC's Marketing Manager of Products and Services, Brian Snyder, says one of the biggest changes has been a greater emphasis on board diversification. Um, about 23% of directors have an insurance background. Not particularly surprising, right? Uh, all other top uh, representations include uh, accounting and legal. All of that's pretty common. Um, if you dive down a little bit deeper, though, and get into um, smaller companies within this sector, about 100 million direct written premium or below, you start seeing um, a little bit of a trend and a change in that those smaller companies have really probably made a stronger effort in terms of becoming more diverse. You know, for instance, Uh, in 2015, these, uh, these smaller companies had about 27% of their directors as uh, insurance background. Now that's shifted down to 19. So a fairly significant change in that there's fewer people with just a straight-out insurance background on the boards of these smaller companies. Uh, where that traffic seems to be going, it looks like in sort of the nebulous other category. Uh, so sometimes it's kind of hard to know exactly what that looks like. Um, or what those positions are, but generally those are going to be other types of business leaders, people outside the legal or even the financial world. So the data suggests that these smaller companies are starting to see the value of diversification in their board, finding people with different backgrounds, different perspectives, and are actively moving to try to recruit those sort of, uh, sort of directors. The survey also examines how companies conduct board meetings how they recruit new members, as well as compensation data. To learn more about these results, check out the 411 webinar on demand at NAMIC.org. There you can also find a link to participate in next year's survey. I'm sorry. If you feel different, you drive different. That's the new message the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration is sending to drivers across the country about the dangers of drugged driving. Like drunk driving, drug-impaired driving is dangerous and illegal in all 50 states, whether obtained legally or illegally. Experts have suggested that legalization of marijuana by some states has contributed to the 28% increase in impaired driving since a decade ago. The effects of legalizing marijuana are also a focus of the insurance industry, as there is conflict between federal and state laws. To better understand these issues, the NAIC started a working group during its summer meeting. It will consider the insurance regulatory issues surrounding the legalized cannabis business from seed to sale, including availability and scope of coverage, workers' compensation issues, and consumer information and protection. NAMIC's policy team is currently working on a white paper regarding marijuana and insurance implications. The paper is expected to be completed in the next few months. Emerging technology is a hot topic for the insurance industry. Whether it's artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, automated vehicles, and drones, 
Insurers are investing in efforts to understand how these kinds of technologies may or may not apply to their business. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness talks with Tom Carroll, NAMIC's general counsel, about the industry's influential role in shaping regulation for some of these new technologies. Today we're talking with NAMIC General Counsel Federal Tom Carroll about a topic near and dear to NAMIC this year, really to our industry, but it's emerging technologies and the insurance industry. Tom, you've been leading the charge for NAMIC on a number of key tech issues, including automated vehicles and drones. So let's get right into our discussion and start with automated vehicles. In fact, I'll start with a note that automated vehicles is the preferred term that we use. Autonomous vehicles, we think, probably adds to the hype unnecessarily. Is that right, Tom? That's true. I think autonomous has been used too many times commercially and leads people to believe that there's a higher level of of control by the car than there actually is. Yeah. Well, you know, this year, um, I guess a couple months ago now, you authored a white paper um, that was talking about validating the safety of ADS technology. ADS, another acronym that's in this, that's Automated Driving Systems, right? Yes. So can you talk about the safety issues it relates to insurers uh, and the critical need for insurers to have access to crash data, uh, you know, as the technology involves? Sure thing, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, as, as our members know, when evaluating the uh, personal or commercial auto insurance uh, policies and rates and per, uh, premiums, what, one of the things they consider is uh, traditionally it's, it's been predominantly focused on the driver. Now, this is changing uh, radically in that the machine, the car, is now assuming some of the driving operations. And in order to understand the, uh, the risks involved and to write a policy and understand and, and, and underwrite that, they need to understand what the vehicle is supposed to do, when it's supposed to do it, how it's supposed to do it. Uh, so rather than look at the human driver, they need to look at the machine now and figure that out. Uh, the, the other corollary to that is when there is an accident, when there will be a crash, uh, to be able to determine whether the human driver was controlling or the actual the, the car, the, uh, the automated driving system, the combination of hardware, software, controllers, sensors, actuators, who is doing what at that point in, or, in order to determine liability. Well, so you've established the information is important. What what challenges exist for our industry, you know, in trying to gather that information that seems so essential, you know, whether it's from automakers or tech companies or others? Probably the, the biggest problem right now is that there is no set uh, uh, autonomous or automated car. They're being developed. Everything is changing kind of on the fly. New systems are being offered uh, by different um, manufacturers. New systems are being developed. Things are changing. So... Uh, it, it, the, the, there's no specific standard to look to in terms of how much the car will do. Different, one automaker has the car doing five things, another one has it doing three things a different way. The other problem is that the regulation of the safety of automobiles is tr- has been traditionally accomplished by the Department of Transportation's National Transportation Safeway, Highway Safety Administration, which basically has the auto manufacturer validate that it's safe safe to drive, that it's been crash-worthy and crash-survivable, uh, and they do not have standards for the driving operation. So Congress is looking at laws to allow that. Uh, the regulators are looking to what they will do. The states are trying to understand what they'll do. At the same time, the manufacturers keep moving the ball in terms of new and different developments. 
Well, that's a great transition to kind of the legislative regulatory scene where I know we're heavily engaged. The Senate had a bill introduced earlier this year. Can you give us an update on where that stands? Sure. There's, there's general legislation that's been offered uh, with respect to allowing further development and testing of autonomous vehicles and to providing some standards. A version passed the House uh, earlier this year, or actually last year, and then a, a version's been introduced into the Senate, which has basically been stuck. Uh, it, it's been offered by Senator Thune and Senator and the minority leader, Senator minority member on the Transportation Committee, Senator Peters from Michigan, uh, and it offers many provisions, but. It's basically a hold has been put on the bill by a number of senators uh, that feel that the bill does not address the safety issue sufficiently and that, that the bill uh, to be allowed to go through needs to have enhanced safety features. So there's been a hold on the bill at this point. There's some discussion of adding the autonomous vehicles bill to the FAA reauthorization by the end of this year, but that's looking less and less likely. Got it. Well, I guess... In a nutshell, why is it critical for our industry to have a role in shaping the regulation of AVs? I assume it has to do with that access to data and other safety factors that uh, you talked about earlier. Our, our industry is 100% supportive of uh, further autonomy if it leads to safety. Uh, if there's a question of safety, if, if the risk of our policyholders being a greater danger, then we really can't support that. So the question is, how do we move forward in a regulatory sense or legislative sense to develop some sort of standards metrics to determine what is safe and what is not safe. Uh, IAHS basically came out with a report yesterday that said a lot of the systems out there, there's, there's the tests are showing that the systems don't necessarily handle driving tasks as well as humans do. So IAHS doing their independence test is coming up with conclusions that indicate that even though people say that uh, the, the computers and artificial intelligence will make things safer, it ain't necessarily so. so we're, we're pushing for some sort of standards at the federal, state, regulatory level that we can establish that these things are safe before we go forward. Ain't necessarily so. Where <laughs> did thought, that come from? Cite your reference, Tom. Uh, I believe it's Porgy and Bess, isn't it? Uh, you are correct. Well done, Tom. Uh, That's our Broadway you. question uh, in this podcast. So tell me about the like AV, the NAMIC sure. AV Council, the Automated Vehicles Council. What's it been doing, and uh, what's it focused on in the near future? We're very excited about the Automated Vehicles Council, which is a, a, a group of members, uh, representatives. We, we've asked for a, both a policy person and what we're deeming, deeming the wonk, the, uh, the technical person at the company who is looking at the more technical and scientific parts of autonomous vehicles to help us put together a policy. So when we're faced with things like the, uh, the Senate bill, or proposed regulations at the uh, Department of Transportation. And we can address that in the best interest of our members and really understand what's going forward in terms of what they need. Excellent. And then related to that, uh, as I know you've had a, a role in the uh, upcoming Future of Auto Summit, NAMIC's uh, second annual, uh, can you tell us you know, what's in the plans for this year's event? We're, we're putting the speakers together now for an October uh, Future of Auto Summit, which we're fairly excited about. We'll talk, obviously, NAMIC will present its advocacy position, but we've got a lot of outside speakers, including IAHS. We'll talk about their, their issues. We've got some exciting issues in terms of public perceptions. Do people want these things? Where do they want from them? 
What do we do for testing and validation? We're also dealing with some non-AV issues, a lot of non-AV issues that are interested that are of interest to our members in terms of distracted driving uh, and uh, the infrastructure needs and support that are necessary for transportation, insurance product modifications, uh, kind of a, both an, an AV focus and a general auto focus, looking to the future in terms of what our members need, where they should look in terms of doing uh, developing their products and services. Excellent. And this year it'll be at M-City, the uh, facility in Michigan. In Ann Arbor, that's correct. And it's October 10th, 9th and 10th this year up there. We're, we're also uh, part of the... Uh, uh, of the program includes actually a tour of M City, which is a artificial city set up by uh, General Motors. Uh, a number of our members who are cooperating in terms of actually driving these things and testing them on a real life basis with sidewalks, pedestrians, bicyclists, pets, stop signs, all those things. Excellent. Well, let's shift gears for a minute, and uh, I do mean that as a bit of a pun here because we're moving from automated vehicles to drones. You know, drones is another area that you've been uh, heavily involved in. We know, you know, in the last year's heavy hurricane season, drones were in use, um, and there's been a lot of, well, it's one of the emerging technologies that our industry has focused on both as a user and as an insurer of uh, these expensive devices. Uh, but not all insurers have dropped on or have jumped on board and started to use the technology. What are some of the challenges keeping companies from um, getting involved with drones? We, we've done surveys in the past, Chuck, and the primary uh, impediment that we found from our that our members are telling us is they don't really understand what the law is in terms of when they can use these and and when they can't, and who's who defines the law in terms of when they'll be in violation of. of requirements or when they might be intruding on somebody's privacy and things like that. So the the overall regulation has been a big issue. Uh, secondly, as you said, the cost, which has gone down dramatically in the last couple of years, uh, and then the, the technology. Uh, what, what can they actually use these things for? And I'll, I'll jump into that if I can, because the, the simplest explanation is uh, if there's damage to a roof and an insurer wants to see what the damage is, Traditionally, they'd have to hire somebody to, to or have somebody in their staff get on a ladder, climb up to a roof, and look and examine that. Uh, it takes several hours, fairly expensive, but with a drone, you can pop the thing out of the case, use the camera, go up, examine that fairly quickly, and uh, determine you know what the damage is. Uh, as you said, in terms of post-disaster hurricanes, you can go through a lot of different areas and see a lot of different policyholders making evaluations and triage decisions there in terms of the, the coverage. There's also very, developing more and more almost a daily basis, fairly sophisticated tools that insurers can use to analyze roof slopes and overall areas of houses and, and a lot of the other things that in terms of underwriting a policy and examining uh, property for a policy, both commercial and residential, uh, it, a lot of information that can be gathered very, very quickly and immediately sent back to a home office to be processed and considered. Well, you've talked about regulation as a key issue that uh, is emerging and, and maybe uh, preventing more companies from using this technology. You know, NAMIC's been an acknowledged leader at the intersection of drones and regulation, uh, both the federal, state, uh, even local level. Uh, can you talk about some of the work you're doing, uh, particularly with Congress and the FAA, to help facilitate uh, better regulation over drones? 
Yeah, we, we, we're working very closely with the senior leadership at the FAA. We've been in, invited to a number of the panels. We're on a couple, of, a number of the safety groups with the FAA, and we've uh, testified before Congress and provided testimony at Congress and congressional hearings with respect to the the laws and regulations necessary for the proper regulation of drones. Uh, uh, we were instrumental in terms of uh, two years ago, the FAA finally provided rules that allowed for the commercial use of drones under certain conditions. Right now, the conditions limit the use of these drones. You cannot fly them beyond visual line of sight. That is the operator, the guy, the, the person controlling the, uh, the, the handset needs to see this at all times. It can't go behind the building. It can't go beyond their, their site. And that severely limits some, some use of this. Uh, the other area is, is over people. Uh, clearly when these things are flying, people like to come out and see them, particularly at a residential house. You know, if the policyholder wants to go see it, the kids want to go see it. If, if by chance you, you fly over people, you have to land that immediately. And we're looking to work with, and we are working with the FAA right now uh, to develop regulations that make this more more usable. Uh, they're, they're, the FAA is concerned of, of safety, uh, people on the ground and safety in the air are certainly overriding concerns, but we're trying to make sure that they're, they're not too broad and we can practically use these under certain circumstances. Excellent. So in, uh, the FAA said a few years ago now that uh, by 2020 insurance would be one of the top five uh, users of commercial drones. Um, you know, now that is just two years away, really less than two years. Um, so what progress do you see being made between now and, and that point in the future when the FAA said we'd be a leading user? I, I think the insurance is certainly stepping up to the plate and, and serving that role. Uh, we've got the larger members who can get the fleets of drones and uh, have provided the services after the hurricanes last year in Texas and Florida in terms of widespread use of damage control and reports uh, during hailstorms in, in, in Texas and Oklahoma. Some of our larger members have been able to put out fleets of these drones that, that do a massive amount of services uh, in terms of uh, both post-damage post and, and uh, pre-coverage uh, reviews. But one of the things that I was very impressed with is, is this year's CEO roundtable, I was at one of the smaller uh, members uh, groups meetings and they were very enthusiastic about the use of not, not necessarily their drones, but hiring somebody to use a drone, go out to a property that's at the very edge of their, their, their territory, uh, provide a damage report to them, and have that instantaneously uh, trans that information transmitted back to the home office where they could settle that policy almost immediately at a desk, and they saw that as a tremendous value to them. So it's not just the... I'm very excited about not just the, 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 the larger NAMIC members using this, but more and more the even the smallest NAMIC members finding the value and economic uh, benefits of using drones. Well, that's great to hear. So, Tom, thank you. Thanks for the update on some key technology around our industry and what NAMIC's doing at that intersection of uh, regulation and legislation. Certainly AVs and drones will be uh, – Things to keep an eye on and things that will continue to keep you busy in our Washington office. We appreciate everything you're doing, Tom. Thank you, Chuck. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with David Paulison, former FEMA administrator and current advisor for the NAMIC-led Build Strong Coalition. They'll talk about his recent testimony on Capitol Hill, where he urged Congress to send the Disaster Recovery Reform Act to the president's desk. 
And that's a wrap for us today. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode of Insurance Uncovered on September 5th. Have a wonderful Labor Day. I'm Kathy Imus. Thanks for listening.